Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome today to another edition of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, lessons therein. And we like to do that through the worlds and the spaces of sports, of music, of books, authors, pastors, comedians, and just where people have great stories. And I feel like today we're covering a lot of that ground based on my guest, which uh, I'm going to get to how we got connected here. Today, our guest is Olivia Eldridge, who I happened to meet at a conference up in Michigan recently called Doxology, put on by one of our previous guests, Wynn Collier, who uh, works for the Eugene Peterson Center up there. And uh, here's how we got connected. So Olivia (laughs) works for NAF Press, and they provided these super cool Psalms message, which Eugene Peterson wrote, little journals. They were really cool. There were about three or four different types. The last day of the conference I was talking to, I can't remember that guy's name, but I said, Hey, you guys have quite a few of these left. Do you think I could get a few extras and take to my kids, make good little Christmas gifts? And for my wife, he said, we got plenty, go ahead and take them. And, uh, then they made a little, uh, comment the opening night of the conference that, Hey, NAF press is also providing this meal we're having that was called a barbecue feast. Now I'm from Tennessee. If you're going to tell me it's a barbecue feast, it better be a barbecue feast. We'll wait and decide <laughs> if this is actually a barbecue feast. And it was. But before they do all this, they say, hey, we have someone from NAF Press. She's going to come up here and say a couple words, which makes sense. So her words out, first words out of her mouth was, hello, I'm Olivia Eldridge from NAF Press. She had me right there. I'm like, I'm looking up. I get out my phone. I'm Googling Olivia Eldridge. Sure enough, she is who I think she is. Daughter-in-law to John Eldridge. Daughter-in-law to Stacy Eldridge. But it led me to Twitter. And on Twitter, it said the following. It's, oh, no, my image has to be downloaded, so I can't see it right away. But I, I'll get to it when I'm able to pull this back up in a minute. But it had a two-word phrase that I had never heard before intersectional feminist well because i do a podcast i'm super curious and i'm like i wonder what that phrase means so i'm asking my five buddies do any of you guys know what this term intersectional feminist means well my super smart friend of the crowd ray willis knew intersectional but he didn't know it attached to feminist and i'm like i've got to ask her this question like what does that mean (laughs) well to take the story even longer I'd planned on hopefully having a conversation with you, Olivia, at dinner that night, but we were sitting together, the six of us, you were actually across the room, and I got up at one point when I was done eating, and I'm like, I'm going to see if I can work my way over there. Well, your table was full, you were sitting with Wynn, it just didn't feel appropriate to come up and ask you right then and there, but as the story goes, we go home that night, we go back to the Airbnb, we do our thing, we get up the next morning. I get to the church, beautiful, beautiful church, by the way. Loved how they had stuff set up there. Mm -hmm. I go downstairs to the bathroom. I come back up. 
I see my guys, and there's these chairs set up a certain way. A couple of my guys are standing up. A couple of my guys are sitting down. There's an open seat, and who's in the other seat? You were. And I'm like, holy cow. Could the Lord have teed this up better? We're obviously supposed to have a conversation. Do you remember how the conversation started from there? Well, I it's so funny. I met with, you know, your the guys you came with. We were just chatting and um I was asking how you all came to be there and they were saying that they came with you and and had wondered if I had met you yet and they were saying you'll find him eventually. He's probably talking to someone. This is what he does. We'll find him having a long deep conversation with somebody. So I'm sure like he'll come find us soon and he'll do that with you. <laughs> And then that's what happened. It was awesome. So you, yeah, you came up and introduced yourself and you asked about that term, intersectional feminist. And so that was how we started our conversation. Well, and I've told this story numerous times for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of, to me, super cool things that came from that. It was definitely, I mean, I'll say it for what it is. It was the highlight of the conference to me because I just, if I'm going to go to do something, whether it's a, a podcast, have lunch with someone I know, one of our small groups we do within the gathering, whatever it may be, I want to, I want Jesus to show up. That's my priority. And mm-hmm. I have said this numerous times about our, our conversation and maybe I'm overstating it. At least for me, it felt this way from the moment you and I started talking, it felt like Holy spirit showed up. And I don't know that mm-hmm. I knew that that way in, in, at the moment, but I could kind of feel it early on. And then by the time we were done talking, which uh, I've heard was probably closer to an hour and 15 minutes later, we missed the first session. We kept talking and yeah, I, I lost track of time. I that. <laughs> yeah. And so you just made it super comfortable. Ray kind of filled in the story mm. a little bit. And then I just felt comfortable enough to just say, so Olivia, tell me what does it mean to be an intersectional feminist? And you responded. Yeah. Tell us what you said. R- explain that yeah, to our listeners. So, yeah. So the idea of an intersectional feminist is that so often feminism, I think the way it's talked about, the way we think about it, it's for like white women and so they are the the beneficiaries of that you know um with kind of uh in a world in a nation where there's a lot of patriarchy and white supremacy and so the idea of intersectional feminism is that it's not just for white straight women it's for it's inclusive of women of color um it's inclusive of lgbtq women it's not just for white straight women and for me that also means that's reflected in faith as well right like that it's not just for women who believe the exact same things I believe or have the exact same like theological stances as I do. Yeah. It's, it's inclusive of all women. Yeah. Well, and I think when you said that, it just, it kind of, it felt to me like it quickly built a bridge because I, I think I said to you, even when I read your Twitter thing, that's what ultimately where I was led to with you was Twitter. And that's how I kind of found out about you and answered Well, I didn't quite answer my ultimate question, which we'll get to later about who you're related to. But it was funny because when I saw it, there were just several things that popped in. Like you you referenced being uh, all things Colorado, sort of something like that. Mm -hmm. You talked about wine. You talked about books. All things I love. Moose even. Like I've I've had a couple (laughs) couple moose burgers now, and those things are pretty good. And it just – it seemed to be very – like build bridge type thing is I think what happened with us. So your Twitter thing says she slash her learner, intersectional feminist, follower of Jesus, publishing professional, big fan of moose, beauty books and wine, Colorado and through and through. Now for me, I would have said Tennessee and through and through 
adopted by <laughs> Montana through and through. Okay, that's not true, but it sounds good. And I just think we sometimes <laughs> get so caught up in labels and we don't really connect mm -hmm. to get beyond a label or a first point of contact. Mm -hmm. And you and I clearly just did. And we got into crazy right stuff and all kinds of deep stuff and things that could be viewed as controversial or whatever. And I just, I remember going away and I think I even said to those guys, like, this is my sister in Christ. Mm, I felt that way too. Period. And you even yeah. validated I me. I mean, we, we jumped right in, right? Mm -hmm. And it was so like fruitful right away. Left me thinking after our conversation for days. Mm. Yeah. And I just think where we live in a world, you know, there's there's a lot of books out right now. Andy Stanley's got a new one out called Not In It to Win It, getting very about how we get divisive real quick. Blue and red, R&D, conservative Republican. Right. And we're not as the church, as the body of Christ, allowing ourselves to be who we're supposed to be. You know, there's a new one. I forgot mm. the two guys' name called Truth Over Tribe, which just, mm. in theory, I'm excited to read that book. I just started reading. I don't know if you're familiar much with... Uh, Maybe he, maybe he's an AF press guy. I don't know. Paul David Tripp, uh, his book. Oh yeah. Reactivity. Have you heard of that one yet? Yes, I have. Yeah, I haven't read it, but I've heard of it. I, it's such an interesting moment, right, for that to be so in our in the like front of our cultural consciousness. Yeah. Like this idea that we're we're more we're we're so divided, and and it's the gap is increasingly larger, and we're having a hard time speaking to each other over it. Yeah. Well, and I think all these books, uh, I haven't read Andy Stanley's. I've got it. I haven't read it uh, from what little I know about Truth Over Tribe. And then I, I'm reading right now Paul David Tripp's Reactivity, which I thought he might take a little bit of a focus more on the negative, And he definitely gets into some of the negative. But the gospel is so robust in this book that it gets way beyond just negativity on social media. That's kind of the focal point of it. But it's gospel, 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 which Tripp is so good at that. And mm -hmm. it really says to me, and I, th I think you probably live in this world and we'll get more into it. Like, where are we going to hang our hat? What is the ground mm -hmm. we're going to fight for at all costs versus what are the things we can give up? So just even using that right. language, you know, in a very generic way, what is, what resonates with you, Olivia, when you hear what's what I'm really going to fight for versus what's ground I can sacrifice and give up? Uh, yeah, that's a really, I think, apt question. I think for me, it, it comes back to, well, two things. I think one is um, like the commands of Jesus were to love God and love each other. And so that has to be the foundation for me. Everything mm -hmm. I do, the things I believe, the things I believe that I believe, and then the things that I act on, which really shows what I actually believe. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like that, the foundation of that has to be that I, I love God and I love the people around me. I love my community and I love people who aren't in my community. And the people who are missed by society, and so I think um, that's a non—that's a non-negotiable for me. Mm. Um, and I think the other—I so, think something else I'm discovering that it's both what I have to hold on to and what I'm willing to give up—is I think the willingness to say I was wrong mm. um, is such a—that's been a, a gift to me that I thought would feel like losing ground, and and maybe sometimes it does, but being willing to say I was wrong and like the freedom of that, that I don't know everything. I'm not the expert in the room. Somebody might know more and it's okay to have, like, it's good to know what you believe and to stand on it. But the, the willingness to say sometimes I was wrong or 
we disagree and I hear you and I honor you. It's mm. and it's fine. It's fine if we don't hold the same position. Like we don't need to believe the same thing about everything to see each other clearly. So you know what's interesting about what you just said there? You probably are way too young to remember this, but in the the TV show Happy Days back in the day, there was uh, a couple times this famous done multiple times over scene where Arthur Fonzarelli the Fonz who uh, was, you know, the epitome of cool back then, had the black leather right. jacket. I'll never forget, it was a big deal in Happy Days when he went from a white T-shirt to a black T-shirt. Like, whoa, he's always the white, now he's wearing a black T-shirt. They've they've gotten more contemporary or something like that. But he would do this thing where he would say, and I remember him like looking in the mirror one time, kind of practicing to get ready, and he'd say, I was, and he would try to say wrong. And it was so hard for him to do. And I just thought, that's a great little moment in a TV show like Happy Days but that's just true of a lot of people. Like I was, right. and, he, and he would he would try so hard to say it, and to say the word wrong for him was very difficult. And I'm like, that mm. is our culture. So is it hard for you to say I was wrong? Like, right. what does that look like, and how does that play out practically in your life, Olivia? Um, I th- it, I think it can be, and it's I it's usually uh, I think it ends up being a a pride thing. Like I don't want to I don't want to. Um, it's hard to admit we're wrong sometimes it's, and it's hard to say it can feel like shame, you know, Mm -hmm. to say Mm -hmm. I was wrong. Um, but I think I've discovered, you know, I've been married for six years and sometimes the catalyst to ending a conflict is to say you were right. And I was wrong and the willingness to, to be wrong and to admit it, um, I think can be really catalytic. And I think the other thing for about this, like, especially in conversations about uh, faith and belief and views in the world, ideologies, is I'm trying to live in alignment with God, um, who God has called me to be, what God says to me, what God says to communities. And so I'm, I, I'm trying to live in alignment with that. And I might die and meet Jesus or Jesus returns, whatever happens first. And he'll say, you were wrong. And I'll say, I, I tried to live in love and I was wrong. You know, I think, um, so I, I think I'm, it sometimes is painful to say I'm wrong, but sometimes it's freedom too to say, I don't know everything. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think you might be right. Well, and I like how you, I like how you took that and it's not about leaving it. I was wrong or I am wrong, but you are right. You know, Mark Batterson, who I love, I'm a big fan of Mark Batterson's. He's got a new book coming out soon called Please, sorry, thanks. And I think the other word I would add into that that you've heard often, you can count these as little short prayers. If you add the fourth one to his, please, sorry, thanks, and help. Yes. Yeah. And Lamont talks about that. Yeah. There's there's just humility Um, in that that's like, I I don't have it all figured out. I don't have all that I need. And it speaks to, I need you. Yeah, right. We need each other, right? I don't want to live in a bubble. I don't want to live. And I don't want to create an echo chamber where I'm always right about everything because that's both unhelpful and is not lent to flourishing, but it's also really boring. (laughs) You've alluded to a couple of things that reminds me of a phrase. I love this phrase about if you're, if you're the smartest person in a room, you need to find a new room. Yeah. (laughs) I would imagine you and I might be alike this way. I, one of my biggest pet peeves is I hate being around people who they always think they're the smartest person in a room. And yes. I've used that phrase a lot because like I love someone told me that years ago and I just love that line about if you think you're the smartest person in the room, find another room. Like you don't you want to be right. in I'd rather be in a room where everybody's smarter than me. Right. Right. I, I think the position of 
the posture of a learner is such a gift to take the posture of a learner, um, to be willing to, to have your views be expanded and, um, to be willing to, yeah, to be wrong or to have your, um, like have outside voices speaking, uh, speaking other truths to you. Like, I think it's really helpful. So what does that look like for you on a daily, regular rhythm flow of life basis for you to be a learner? Mm. Yeah, I think it, I think it, like I said, it's not, it's creating something other than an echo chamber. Like I'm really, I, uh, Twitter is like the one social media I'm on. I don't love social media. I don't, I, I find that it gives me a lot of anxiety. So I, I'm not on it very much other than Twitter, but it, it's really easy to only follow people or accounts that you yeah. agree with, yeah. um, in theology and politics and just like life practices. And so I think it's, it's expanding who I'm willing to hear from. Mm. And it means that I don't, I, I think I'm in conversations with family and with friends, not writing off what they say, just because I don't agree with it. Like asking the, like curiosity is, I think, such a tool that is underused. Like Ted Lasso talks about that. Mm. Like be curious, not judgmental. Yeah, I love Ted Lasso and I love that posture of curiosity. Show. Like, let's find out more. Yeah. I don't I don't understand what you're saying or I don't think I agree. So tell me more. Yeah. I love the line John Wooden, the famous basketball coach from UCLA, says the day you die is not the day you physically die, it's the day you stop learning. And I love mm. that quote. Love that quote. I love that. All right. So you Yeah, alluded- may we may we never lose that yeah. posture, right? A hundred percent. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. So there's several things we need to touch base about that you referenced being married for six years. And this is where I'm going to bring your hair into the equation. So in getting ready to interview you, we've talked, you know, we, we knew, in fact, when I came back home, a couple of my buddies said, so when are you getting Olivia on your podcast? And I said, well, you know, that came up in our conversation because we hit it off as well as we did. I'm like, I got to have her on. Uh, but I went back and looked at a little bit towards the end of the movie. So you with your husband and brothers-in-law and women in your life tied to the Eldridges and definitely, yes, people who want to know your father and mother-in-law are John and Stacy Eldridge. There's this movie that mm-hmm. I took a bunch of guys to the theater and see. I've shown it a couple other times, other places. I own it. I've watched it with my boys. A story worth living. I remembered you in there, so I thought you, I did, and I ultimately did, but your hair is radically different now than what it was then. Not that you're not allowed yeah, to change it. Yeah, I had a pixie cut then. You had some seriously short hair, and now you don't. And I'm like, is that the same? Wait, that is her. I know it is. I can see it in her face. <laughs> my driver's license has my short hair, and every time I uh, like go through security at the airport, they do a double take because it doesn't really look like me anymore. <laughs> So I know a lot of women identify to some degree with their hair. So what do you, what does Olivia Eldridge today look at when she sees that picture of you with very different hair compared to now? Do you do you kind of constantly evolve and change regularly? What's what's hair like in your life? <laughs> I mean, I I do. I and it's funny. I think about this a lot. That the person I am, the person I am now, is so different from who I was even six months ago, a year ago. But certainly, that was Luke and I weren't even engaged yet. We were just dating at the time oh, I thought you that were. I was in that movie. I thought you got it. You were engaged. Mm-hmm. We got, yeah, we got engaged the next day. Like the day after Get out of ended, here. we got engaged at the ranch. Yeah. So tell me, was but, everybody um, mad at you? Like, why did you not include that in the movie? <laughs> 
I hadn't even thought about that. I don't think anybody's ever what? said that. And it, it it was like our own special thing. But that I did it say in the movie that we got engaged. I thought after? it I, did, I can't remember. But- I just, what really frustrated me was when I went back and I spent like five minutes on it. It wasn't long, but I saw where you guys started eating at the end and I thought, oh, I bet the elders just do it upright with food. Yes. Oh yeah. Lots of good food. Yeah. And my father-in-law and brothers-in-law are game hunters. And so it's always good game meat, which I'd never eaten before I, before Luke and I got married. So that's been the first time I had caribou and moose and elk and deer, all really fun. Yeah. Well, sell us on your husband real quick, because I do remember telling you that Luke was the one of the guys in the movie who, uh, obviously, Dan, why well, am I blanking, Dan? Allender. Allender. He's in the movie, mainly Eldridge's. A couple other guys who are kind of long, know the family, or, or more specialized in the biking scene or whatever. But uh, yeah. Luke was the one who really stood out to me. I'm like, if I'm hanging with one of these guys, I want it to be Luke. So. Tell us for people who don't know. Tell really? Us, Wait, tell me why. That's awesome. There was just, um, I, I'm really, okay, well, you mentioned the word curiosity. I love curiosity, but the word I like even better that's not totally connected to it is wonder. And I felt like there was a real mm. sense of wonder with Luke. The, the way he responded to you when you guys saw each other, I think that was part of it. But there was just something, I think his he, even emotion when he got emotional a couple times, as they all did, yeah. um, there was just something very, uh, a natural draw um, and I go into things like that where I'm thinking like, okay, who would I want to hang out with here? And Luke was the one. It had nothing to do. I didn't know that mm. until uh, you said which one your husband was. But I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. And then when I saw the, that clip in the movie, I'm like, yeah, it was Luke. Luke's who I thought I'd like to hang with. So tell us about how great your husband is. Oh, he's the ever-loving best. Yeah, he's my best friend and so gifted. And I think that wonder, like that's a really lovely, that's a really lovely way to describe him. He's a He's a poet. He just graduated with his MFA in creative writing and poetry from Colorado State University. And so I think he brings that artist's lens to um, so much of his life, that observation, that wonder, that ability to see truths that other people can't Mm. or aren't willing to see. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. We, yeah, we've been married for six years together for eight, which is crazy to think about. And we got married really young. And so I feel like we grew up together in a lot of ways, and he has been the best partner for growing up that I could mm-hmm. imagine. I, I think we'll probably talk about this a little later, but I've been kind of in a season of deconstruction and reconstruction, and he's been the best person to mm-hmm. go through that with. Like, so willing to have those conversations with me and willing to grow and evolve and change as well. And he has such a sense of joy, too. Like, he could yeah. get, I swear, he could get, he hates the Enneagram, but I think he's an Enneagram seven. Because he could get anybody to do anything. Like, mm. he'd be like, we're going whitewater rafting. And I'd be like, well, I'm not sure. And he'd be like, we're going. We're inviting all our friends. We're going to do yeah. it. And we'd all go and have a ball. Wow. You know, he's he's just like, he his joy is contagious. And he has the best laugh of anybody I've ever met. Wow. If you heard him laugh, it would be the best laugh in the world. I know some people I've said have great, great, like, best of laughs. I, I want to hear that just to see where he fits in the least who I think has great laughter. So, you know what I love that you said, Olivia, there? So, I love story. I mean, you know, I don't. I'm, not everybody has to meet when they're young and get married and all that kind of stuff. God's timing is perfect and good with whatever it is. But I, I've never heard anybody who got married young say, we grew up together. And there's just kind of a young, mm. innocent, naive teachable thing in what you said there like I, I don't know if that have you heard mm. other people talk like that like we grew up together I think 
I think so. You know, we were in a, we went to a small liberal arts Christian college and there was kind of, it was kind of a thing, you know, you meet your person and you get married not long after you graduate, getting married young, I feel like was kind of a, um, a normal thing. And uh, so I think other friends who've been through that have said similar things, but you know, we were 22. And when I hear about people getting married that young now, I'm like, you have time. It's okay. No rush. But I think we were, we were still finding ourselves outside of our family of origin. We were still finding ourselves as people who had just graduated from college. And I think finding out about how to make our way in the world as adults. And so we did that together. And I think it, he, it was a gift to do. And he was the right person for me to do that with. Incredible. That's neat. It's so cool. You can just see God's hand on all that stuff. So what mm-hmm. you mentioned deconstruction. So let's get into that. Cause that was, it was funny when we, when we were talking here in Michigan, you started talking deconstruction and I thought, uh Oh, here's where we could go sideways. But then you quickly threw in the word reconstruction, which I remember saying to you, yeah. that's what I want to hear. So talk about that. However personal you want to get in your own life with that, how quickly, you know, was it side by side reconstruction automatically come came with it or is it, it lagged behind some or talk about that in your own life? Yeah. So it's been a couple of years now. And I think there were several impetuses. I, I think like the state of the world is a good one <laughs> mm-hmm. and the state of the American evangelical church um, has all the ways it is not what it should be. Um, and I think, um, I think I, I w- this was already happening for me before 2020, but I think the way the pandemic unfolded and then, you know, the, all the police brutality and racial injustice towards um, people of color and, and black people that happened in the summer of 2020 and all of the subsequent like response to that really contributed for me. But I think it was the, it, so it, it was kind of a confluence of things and some, it's been a really challenging couple of years for me in kind of a variety of ways, both in my work life and in my personal life. And so all these things kind of converged and all of a sudden the faith I'd grown up in, I realized how fragile it was that there were lots of holes in it. And I think especially holes around, around those commandments from Jesus to love God and love each other, especially in um, loving our neighbors as ourselves. And in, I've discovered that the, especially the church I grew up in. And I think the church still today, we have really poor theologies of grief. Mm. And um, I've been in my husband and I, this feels a little vulnerable, but my husband and I are um, in a journey of infertility. And um, that is a a really specific and um, painful kind of grief. You know, the grief for something that you long for that has not come to pass Mm. that, and you wonder if it will. And so I think, all of those things kind of happened at the same time. And I realized that this, the faith I had, had grown up in um, and some of the faith I had grown myself up in as an adult was really fragile. And, and the kind of the foundation started to shake and the bones of the house broke down. And so for a while it, it was only deconstruction. I, I like, I don't think I could quite conceive of a landing place yet. And it was, it was so much, disillusionment and disenchantment with the theology I'd grown up in and had learned. And, and it, it was so filled with grief for me. Like it felt like I was homeless. That was the only way I could Mm. think to describe it. Like my safe landing base all of a sudden was gone and it felt like I was homeless. 
And it, I was asking so many questions and I really had to strip it down to like brass tacks. Like it wasn't, it stopped being like the problem of evil and is God good and is God omnipotent to like, who is God to like, do I believe that God exists? Yeah. Like I really built, I wanted to build something that would last, I wanted yeah. to build something that would last. So it was like, it was like bones up, you know? And so being like, okay, yes, I believe God exists. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I believe that God is loving. You know, I really, I felt like, I feel like I built it brick by brick, but that was the reconstruction that for me, it required going down to the, the very foundation of it and building back up. But I, I, there was such grief in the homelessness of that, of that experience for me. And I didn't, I don't want to be homeless forever. Yeah. I, I want to build back up, you know, I want to, and I want to have a strong foundation that I'm living out of. And so that was the desire for reconstruction. It's, and it's so easy, you know, I work in publishing and so we get, we get proposals, we review proposals all the time. And it is so easy to talk about the stuff you hate about a proposal. And it's a lot harder to talk about the things you like. Mm. And so it's way, I think it's way easier to name all the things you don't believe anymore, all the things that you can't believe anymore. But it, it, I found it to be much harder to put those bricks back in place and name the things I did. But I, that is so important. I, I didn't, I don't want to land in a, in the, a place of apathy that I no longer believe in everything or anything, you know? So how I'm curious how that plays out. So, you know, a lot of times I start off by asking a person's three, four or five minute testimony. And I think for mm -hmm. you, I want to take that more to like, okay, so where in this deconstruction reconstruction thing has Jesus really won with and for you where you're like, okay. Cause I mean, clearly I think most people, if they're going to go that route of deconstruction reconstruction, we talked about it in Michigan, the Bible has to be key, has to be central. It's still, a reference point because without it, I think you just go off the rails. What about and it's it's ultimately I think for most people it's let's separate what I know and what I've experienced church wise and bring it back to Jesus. Eyes on a prize, uh, Hebrews twelve. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. So what about Jesus through all that made you say, yeah, this is why I'm going to land. This is why he would be home. What about Jesus keeps you? Yeah, I I think it is the it's the character of, of Jesus and who we see him to be. I'm working on this, a Bible project right now. It's a women's devotional Bible. And it's, it's the idea of letting the women of the Bible tell their own stories. And you see in the, in the gospels that Jesus saw women and saw vulnerable people and he made space for them. And he called out broken systems and he called out oppressive power and he uh, he loved people who were deemed unlovable and so mm -hmm. like oh that could like bring me to tears like that's that's who i want to follow Did right you... like not a mega church pastor who has a secret mm -hmm. like like secrets behind the scenes that are like operating in sin but i want to follow like the christ who loves and sees people who feel unseen and so that was such a draw back for me like that. And I, I just felt this, uh, I just felt like invitation from, mm. from Jesus. I, so mm. a way I experience the love of Jesus, the way Jesus tells me he loves me is heart rocks. I find heart rocks mm. and I now have hundreds of them. And there was a season that a really kind of dark season for me where I didn't find any. And I mm. felt like God wasn't answering my wow. prayers or hearing me. And I felt, I think really, alone. And I started to find heart rocks again. 
And on a, I was walking my dog one day and I found like 10 of them. And I thought to myself, I think Jesus is wooing me. (laughs) And so I think the only, like only that loving Christ could pull me back. Right. Could pull me, um, pull my, my tunnel vision of all the brokenness of Christianity back to like who we're trying to be. So this woman's devotional, did you choose this or did they assign it to you? I chose it. Yeah. So my, I now do, um, I do like half kind of production editorial stuff. And then half of my job is working with the message Bible, Eugene Peterson's Mm -hmm. translation. So I develop Bible products for that line. So the women, it's a women's devotional Bible. It's 400 devotional pieces written by a hundred women contributors. And so it's a massive project. And that was the first, I knew I was moving in this direction of the message, but that was the first project that really came up and that I got to say like, yes, I want that. So I'm, I'm the project manager for that. So I've touched every piece of this, of this Bible. If God's um, not, if God's not faithful and good and true and, and perfect in his design for stuff, I mean, as as soon as you started saying that for what I think I know of you, I'm like, could this have been teed up any better for you with where you are? Right. Right. I, it really, I think has been, um, a, like bellwether of faith for me. Mm. I'm working out in real time, the God of the histories, uh, like the historical books who like we see genocide and we see like violence and sexual violence towards women. I'm working out in real time who that God, like the continuity of God and, and, and the, the redemptive arc of the Bible that nobody is too far gone, you know, and that, that we are looking towards, Jesus in the whole story. You know, I just feel like it's really been a lovely, uh, like a perfectly timed and a really lovely invitation back into faith. We should, uh, we should, maybe NAF press wants to come up with a marketing scheme that says, we'll, we'll pay you to deconstruct and reconstruct just by working here. Go figure. (laughs) Yeah. Come work for us. Sounds like there's something. Yeah. Sounds like there's something to be said for that. Well, Hey, we still got a lot of, a lot to cover here, but I want to, I want to ask you my rapid five, five questions real quick, just to have a little fun, get off on the rails here a little bit. So, uh, Olivia, what's your favorite childhood snack or cereal? Lucky charms. And when I was a child, I would eat all of the cereal part and save all the marshmallows to the end. That was the way to do it. And then the marshmallows are so good. Okay. Well, yeah, you, you, seem, all you seem like there's a real lucky. strategy, <laughs> no compromise on that one. So. I seem like what? You seem like there's a, a real strategy there with no compromise and how you did that. There's no other way. <laughs> so what is your, uh, especially in your world of publishing, what is your favorite book you most like to or want to gift to other people? Yeah, I think it's probably something from the message. There are, are like full Bibles and um, devotional Bibles and portions and like small portions. And I, the message, I think when I was in college really shaped my faith. Okay. Um, when I was asking some of those same questions, it gave me new language for God and new insight into the story I've been invited into. And so I think, yeah, giving people copies of that is one of my favorite things. So I, I assume you read A Burning in My Bones, right? Yeah. What'd you think of that? Oh, so good. I mean, Eugene was a really remarkable person. He was a really remarkable pastor and um, author and poet and father. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was really beautiful to see his whole life story. And uh, I think Wynn Collier did a beautiful <laughs> job. 
I loved reading that on sabbatical last summer 2021. And then sometime thereafter, I watched the old uh, famous YouTube clip you can go find with Eugene Peterson and Bono and Eugene's wife. And I'm thinking, man, it just it made that thing like way more 3D than it could have without reading that book. So Right. So cool. So the, the extended Eldridges are going on vacation and you stumble. Uh, you guys have to stop sooner than you planned on. And all of a sudden you see the, on the exit sign these three places, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, In-N-Out Burger. Where do you guys stop? Immediately In-N-Out. For sure. Yeah. I didn't grow up with In-N-Out and it was so revelatory the first time I had it. So and I think there's something there for everyone. Well, and, and as we say, when people, you know, it's funny, people are super passionate about In-N-Out and Chick-fil-A one way or the other, because some people think they're one or both or overrated or whatever, but you do. People have to remember In-N-Out's got scripture on their cups, I hear, or whatever. So do it's, they really? Yeah. Somebody <laughs> I've talk, never noticed that. <laughs> somebody talked about it on the podcast. So there's a, there's a God thing, not just to chicken, but also to burgers when it's done In-N-Out way. I think In-N-Out is great. That would be my answer as well. So. What is the movie, Olivia, that gets you every time, whether it's you solo or you with Luke? And if it's old school and you're flipping channels, if you stumbled across this movie, you have to watch it every time. Yeah. So what's funny is I am not a sports person at all. I just it's, uh, I didn't really play sports growing up. I wasn't very good at them. I And I so love people who love sports, but I it's just not really my um, something I felt very strongly about. But the movie Miracle about the oh, 1980 yeah. US Olympic, Olympic hockey yeah. team. When I was a child, I watched it and it became my favorite movie. And I had really? several birthday parties in a row as a child that I made everybody watch that <laughs> movie like several years in a row. Um, but I think just the it's the ultimate underdog story yeah. and how a team of underdogs like gave hope to people who yeah. uh, felt really hopeless and 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 found each other despite chasms of difference between them. And that movie makes me cry every single time. Wow. And I live in, I live in Colorado Springs now. And the, so the U S Olympic and Paralympic museum is here in town and oh, they wow. have the scoreboard from that game, wow. the actual scoreboard at the Olympic museum. And I, I, Luke took me there for my birthday a couple of years ago and I lost my mind. It was so exciting. <laughs> That's so funny how things work like that because I'm a huge sports fan, but I'm not a big fan of sports movies. And I remember watching it and it didn't totally grab me. But as you were talking, I literally got goosebumps in my head. I was picturing Al Michaels because I was a kid. I remember exactly where I was when that game happened. And I'm not a huge hockey fan, but that moment was huge. And I, I could hear in my head Al Michaels saying, do you believe in miracles? So you, you believe in miracles. Yes. Have you watched it on YouTube? Have I that moment? Yeah. They actually have the audio of that at the very end of the movie. It's the real audio yeah. from that um uh, from that commentator. Well, I think yeah. the, I think the whole game is actually on YouTube to watch. Is it really? And I'll I, have to go watch it. I didn't know that. Oh, uh, well, I just saw an interview not long ago on HBO with Al Michaels and him kind of reliving moments, but it's like there, there is nothing anybody in the history of sports could ever commentate that will stand out like Al Michaels saying, do you believe yeah. in miracles? And I mean, do it was, believe in miracles. it's so funny that you, I, and I'm not surprised to hear you say that. It's kind of my wife other than watching her kids play. She's not a fan of sports really, but um, to think that your favorite movie ties into sports, that blows my mind. So isn't that funny? So here, here's another good one. I got to know who was your first celebrity crush? 
Yeah. Uh, Ewan McGregor from Star Wars. <laughs> My wife would want to high five you right now, but she would say it was, uh, what was the musical he was in? Oh, oh Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge. Also that. Yeah. Yes. She loves him in Moulin yeah. Rouge and yep. a couple things before. Yeah. And he has like aged like fine wine. He still looks great. He still has a great singing voice. So. Well, and we know you like wine. Yeah. So there you go. Fine wine for yeah, you. Yeah, there that's, you go. <laughs> that's a great compliment. So, hey, let's talk real quick. I know we talked about this a little bit. We didn't get into it much um, when we were in Michigan, but we both had a definite interest and desire to talk about modesty. Modesty with women. Okay. Me leading a men's ministry. It's It's not a space. I can get to very often, but we did have a pretty good conversation about it and talk about, you know, some of your thoughts and ideas and where, uh, cause I think, I think we hit a really good healthy point as a, as a 53 year old man and a still 20 something year old woman talking about modesty with women. Yeah. Yeah. I think I grew up in purity culture. Like I think there was really kind of a, that, that was such a emphasis in uh, Christianity when I was growing up. And so and it was, it was, yeah, modesty that the phrase so often used was modest is hottest. And, um, and, and I think the foundation, like, again, so I'm really interested in taking things down to brass tacks. Like mm. when you get down to the bottom of it, my experience of it and the experience of so many women I know is that women were told if it is your fault, you are responsible for the men around you for not tempting them. Um, men have no responsibility in this. Boys have no responsibility in this. It is on you and your body is wrong. And that was though, like, despite the, uh, the messages that were said, the overarching messages of, of, uh, you know, dressing modestly and not tempting our brothers in Christ, the actual messaging underneath was like, you are responsible for this. And that was so harmful. That was such a, that was such a harmful, um, like thing to try to fit myself into, um, to feel like there was something wrong with my body, something I couldn't control. I hit puberty really early. And so was dealing with that really early and to feel like there was something wrong with me and that it was my responsibility to, uh, it was my responsibility for the thoughts of the boys and men around me. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's been part of my deconstruction as well, although I think that happened earlier um, than the season I've been in. But just to say, I think like boys and men have need to be taught as well um, mm. to not objectify women for how to treat women well, how to make space for women. It is not the responsibility of women to not make men be tempted by them. It is the responsibility of men to look on women with respect well, and, it, I think and, if, and I, not lust. I think we would agree where we both have passions in this area. It's, it's no different than race. It's like, we all have to come together, be willing to say, if we're going to be fair here, I could say whatever you can say, whatever we can agree, disagree. We could talk about it. We can put the other person ahead of ourselves and grow to be at a place where whether it's agree to disagree or whatever, but do whatever it takes to not be a stumbling block to the other person, whether that's race and I like how you emphasize, like we hear people do and probably need to do it a whole lot more about anti-racism versus racism. Um, mm-hmm. Because again, I, I remember you and I kind of stopping and having a moment in our second conversation uh, there in Michigan, talking about modesty and saying kind of something like, man, don't you wish other people could just come together like this? Like we don't, yeah, we come from different places, different spaces, different spots in life, age, uh, how we've been raised, what part of the country we live in, whatever. But there's a place here we can really have 
our brothers back, our sisters back, and really live and do this together. But I think as much as we struggle talking about many things in life, uh, male, female, modesty, lack of modesty, whatever, who's responsible for what, I think we really have trouble having that conversation. Yeah, yeah. And I think the historical stance of the church, in my experience, has been that women are at fault, and that has to change. That has to be part of the conversation, that women do not bear the sole responsibility of these conversations. And that was my upbringing. And I I know for so many women, I know that was theirs as well. And so I think if we're going to come together, that means shared responsibility, Mm. and it means shared accountability. Um, it, it cannot. And, and I think that starts in how boys and girls are raised from the time they're little. Yeah. And I think it carries into how adults treat each other as well. You know, the young teenage daughter, I, this, this world we're talking about right here scares me to death based on expectations, based on how you're supposed to be. It is. And as a dad uh, with three sons, I'm like, wow, this thing mm-hmm. with a daughter is, I mean, I love her to death. I think we have a great relationship and I'm like, it, it's super tough knowing what does this road look like? Cause she said puberty probably sooner in a lot of ways than, than maybe others or whatever. But, um, Olivia, unfortunately time is here. I, we got a lot of things we didn't get through. I, I know I often say, I can't wait for the next conversation here. I have a hunch with me and you, Same. this is going to be a lot sooner than not. So I would love that. Thanks for, I, I wish this is where I wish uh, a podcast was, uh, visual and not, just on sound because I, I I love seeing you process some of the stuff we're talking about from your eyes, closing your eyes, just the way you're thinking, reflecting on things. And, uh, you know, I think when I mentioned the word wonder about Luke earlier, you know, it's easy to drift towards beauty. You, you reference that with things you're about. And, uh, of course you live in a great state for that, but, um, in your Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, profile, and I could just see where you and Luke would really dive in deep together and really experience all that God would want us to experience in this life, not just, mm-hmm. um, you know, relationships, the joy they're in, but food, drink, uh, location, trips, uh, all yeah. the above. So, mm-hmm. Olivia, if people want to yeah. find out more about you, where would they go? I was, I saw this in your questions and I realized <laughs> I don't have a great answer for this. I think Twitter probably, and um, I think NAF Press. Uh, NavPress. Yep. NavPress.com. NavPress. And for the Message Bible line, that's what I'm up to right now. Yeah. I don't blog or I'm not really (laughs) on social media, but that's where my vocation and my passion live right now is with NavPress. Well, we're just saying there's a whole lot more they need to really dive deep in just on this podcast alone and more to come. And we got to talk a whole lot more about the Eldridge family, um, some other stuff you and I planned on talking about that we didn't get to as much, but uh, yes, um, more modesty conversation. That's and right. So I think it's so good to talk about. Well, and just deal with the heart and uh, the I'm wrong. You're right. right. Whole lot of other stuff. So uh, I'm glad that God saw it in his divine wisdom and divine appointments to have us cross paths there up at uh, uh, Holland, Michigan. So me too. I uh, bought this sweater. I wore it for this uh, for this conversation. I bought this sweater when I was in Michigan for that trip. So. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it was, yeah, lovely to meet you there. And I'm awesome. so glad we got to continue the conversation yep. we started. 100%. Get to dive deep right away. There I'm you go. for it. All right, Olivia. We'll catch up again soon and get you back on a schedule. And uh, as always, much fruit and many blessings to you, my friend. You as well. Thanks so much for having me. Right. It's been so good to talk with you. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at GatheringMiamiValley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation.
the Rise FM Podcast Network. <laughs>